Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you and rejoice indeed that in the morning we rise and we worship you. Father, we thank you for giving us a heart to do so and pray, Father, that as we go through part of your word in Sunday school this morning, Father, that you would grow in us the desire, the willingness, the eagerness to give you praise and worship from our hearts. And Father, that we would be further equipped in understanding how to apply and understand and walk in all of the word that you've given us, Old Testament and New. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay, so this is Adult Sunday School on Christian Liberties, Part 2, Week 2. Week 1 was a few weeks ago, I think two weeks ago. Uh, And I told you at that point we were planning on three of these and found out today we're planning on two of these. (laughs) So this is week two of two, which actually, probably unfairly, uh, allows me to escape from answering some of the hard questions. Um, Although there may be a chance, probably not because the way this usually goes, a chance we could get to some of those towards the end of our time together this morning. Uh, So this is week two of two on Christian Liberties. Uh, You may have noticed week one actually didn't record, so our apologies for that, Um, which is why I have at the top of your notes here the review of week one, and the overall, the title was Reversing Our Misconception of Christian Liberties. We tend to have a need to completely flip on its head the way we think about liberties, and you may recall the way I started that one is... We have this tendency, especially from our upbringing as young children in this country, uh, someone tells us we can't do something and we say, yes, I can, it's a free country. So we have this American conception of liberties that our freedoms exist, and this is true in a political sense, our freedoms are hard won and paid for at the blood of those who have fought for our freedoms as a country. Uh, but our, that's not how we think about biblical freedoms. We, haven't, we don't have our biblical freedoms in order to do what we want. As a matter of fact, Scripture warns us it's really the reverse of that. We're freed from our enslavement to our lusts and our passions, and we're freed unto slavery. You may recall I started making that point from Exodus that God said, let my people go out of slavery, Ebed, in Egypt, so that they may serve Ebed, me as slaves in the wilderness. So always we are slaves, freed from slavery unto slavery. So we're freed, and this is Romans 6, we're freed from slavery to sin and death and, and the law in a corrupt sense. We're freed unto Christian freedom, which means now we're enslaved to love and serve others with our liberties. So the right question to ask is not, what can I get away with in terms of the freedoms that are secured for me in Christ? It's how, can I, how am I now free to sacrifice my own preferences and serve the preferences of others? And I have there, so that's point number one, free to be a slave from two weeks ago. Secondly, how to serve your weaker brother or sister. And you'll see there's a lot of overlap in terms of points two and three. How to do that, be humble. And then a really important one, assume good motives from 1 Corinthians 4. And then Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 8.13 where, and I'm going to touch on that again today, where he says, uh, if meat causes my brother to stumble, then I will never eat meat again. Paul's putting on display this heart. Even if I love meat, if it's going to cause a brother to stumble, it's just something I'm free to give up. That's the way Paul thinks about his Christian liberty. 
And then number three, how to serve your stronger brother or sister. Also be humble and assume good motives. But then also don't judge others for what their conscience is able to approve. Romans 14, 3 and 4. Uh, so I'm happy to answer questions if you all missed uh, week one. But like I said, unfortunately, the um, uh, recording isn't up. So questions of me and uh, a review there in the notes will have to suffice. So here, let's get into week two. And the key question uh, for week two is this. Is a New Testament believer freed from obeying the Old Testament law? And this question, as you may be aware, has been answered in a number of ways throughout church history. And I have in my notes, you probably can't see this, but I have a big highlighted, underlined, bolded with nine exclamation points, no. That's the answer to the question. So if you take one thing away today, take away the fact that the New Testament believer is not freed from obeying the Old Testament law. And if that startles you or strikes you as not being right, then hold on and I'll try to explain. So the key thought, and this qualifies that a little bit, a New Testament believer, just like an Old Testament believer, is obligated to obey, and here's the key qualifier, by faith. An old, a New Testament believer, just like an Old Testament believer, is obligated to obey by faith. And then, so point number one in supporting this, a believer must submit to all the law, Old Testament and New Testament. One of the key places that we find this reality unfolded in the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. And you're probably familiar with Jesus' most famous sermon. It goes from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, and we're not going to look at the whole sermon today, but I am going to look briefly at one part of it. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And as you are opening there, let me just explain, uh, as you may be familiar with, Jesus corrects a lot of misunderstandings in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he often says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Does that ring a bell? That's, he says that a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's correcting a misunderstanding. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine some of us, and I know this is the case in the evangelical world at large, how many of us think he's correcting what was wrong with the Old Testament? Uh, that, unfortunately, is uh, not an uncommon thought. When he says, you have heard it said, he's not saying this is what the Old Testament says. He's saying this is how the law has been applied corruptly. Does that make sense? When Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's correcting how the Old Testament law has been applied corruptly. And actually, okay, now I'm going to upset you, sorry. Turn to Romans chapter 9. End of chapter 9. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 5. Romans chapter 9, end of the chapter. You might say, if you didn't, keep a finger there in Matthew 5. Okay, so, end of chapter 9, and this goes into chapter 10. Paul is talking about how Israel missed the point of the law. How did Israel, and by that largely we mean Israel's leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, they were the ones upbraided constantly by Jesus in the 
the Gospels because they were the ones leading out in this, although the nation of Israel largely followed them in this, that they were taking the law to be an opportunity for them to display their own righteousness. Does that make sense? The Old Testament nation of Israel, by and large, led by their leaders, this isn't every last one of them, and I've talked about this recently in the uh, book of Ephesians, there's a remnant always that does have the heart to rightly apply the law, but the nation of Israel, God says more than once, the Lord your God has still not given you a heart to obey all of his commandments. So what Israel was doing is led by the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and uh, lawyers in the Gospels, they were corruptly applying the word, using it as an opportunity to display their own righteousness. So uh, Paul's talking about that, end of Romans 9, starting with verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did did not attain that law. Why? And Paul answers here, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he goes on, and let's look ahead to uh, verse 3 of chapter 10. For not knowing about the righteousness of God. So what is the law? The law is part of God's gift of righteousness to his people. The law displays not his people's righteousness, but his Does that make sense? The law displays not God's people's righteousness, but God's righteousness. But they missed it. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. So that's how Israel corruptly, following their leaders, used and applied the law. They made it an opportunity to portray their own, display their own righteousness. That's not what it was for. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this would, you know, in, in terms of right application, seeing all the way from the beginnings of Scripture, as I've unfolded in sermons from Genesis, Genesis 3, the promise of Messiah was always the basis on which God was restoring his people to himself, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. So that's a demonstration, not of an Adam, Adam and Eve's righteousness, They're sinners. They've brought themselves justly under death penalty at that point. God's righteousness is put on display through the promise of Messiah. So Christ is the telos. He's the goal of the law. The law is always meant to lead you to a righteousness that is by faith, not a demonstration or display of your own righteousness. Okay, so now looking back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and I'll get there with you. Okay, verses 17, what did I put? 17 through 20. Okay, so Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And what commandments is he referring to here? Any guess? Just throw something out. Good. 
so that's a summation of what? The Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments are a summation of the entire law, right? So the entire Old Testament law don't teach anyone not to obey it, right? And does he accept anything from that? Does he say we're talking about just the moral law, not the ceremonial and civil? The whole thing. So, all right, let's keep going. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, so that again is the whole law, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." So I have a few points to make under that text, starting with, number one, our obedience is counted perfect. So what we have to realize is that Jesus in this context is not saying, you are going to have my righteousness counted for you, although that is true in a sense. He's talking about who doing the law in these verses, him or us? Huh? Jesus does the law. He's talking about us doing the law in these verses, right? Yes, we do it, and that's the qualifier. We do it by faith. We do the law by faith. Now, let me illustrate this. Turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Okay, we're looking at verses 5 and 6. Okay, Luke 1, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God. So that's the same thing, essentially, it says of Abraham, like Paul quotes in um, Romans 4 from Genesis 15, that he was counted righteous, or it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? So in the eyes of God, in the sight of God, they were both righteous. But listen to what it says next. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. So what's the standard there? It's the law, right? The commandments, and what what does it say? The commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord, which are unfolded to us where? In the law. So what does it say about them? They, they did their best, and it was pretty good. They were righteous. They walked blamelessly. Now, in context, what do we see Zechariah do? Do we see him walk perfectly in this context? We see him unbelieving, right, when the angel Gabriel comes. So what has to be true? And this is what Calvin refers to as double justification. Don't let that scare you. It's, it's the right way of thinking about this. Not only is our position reckoned as righteous before God, and that's, we rightly emphasize that, our obedience is also reckoned righteous by God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can refer to them as Old Testament saints because here they are prior to the birth of Jesus being counted in their obedience as perfect. And so the, the question can be asked, like from Psalm 15, you know, where it says, who can abide on your holy hill? Who can be in your tent, O Yahweh? 
the one, and then it goes on to describe all of these ways in which the one who can abide there has to be perfect? Well, can we do that? The answer is no in ourselves and yes by faith. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are walking blamelessly, and the standard is the law, and they're doing it blamelessly. They're righteous by faith, and it's a matter of their obedience to the law. Okay, so our obedience is counted perfect. Number two, our obedience is to the spirit of the law. Our obedience is to the spirit of the law. Now, I want to say, and I'll say this more than once probably, most often keeping the spirit of the law looks identical to keeping the letter of the law. That makes sense? Most often keeping the spirit of the law looks identical to keeping the letter of the law. But it doesn't always, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. But our obedience, and this is always true, our obedience is always to be from the spirit of the to the spirit of the law, and that's from the heart that God gives us to want to obey, right? And that's what I have as number three. Our hearts, and this is if we have a new heart given to us by God through the Spirit who indwells us, our heart wants to submit, and so our heart obedience is counted perfect, and it produces astounding external fruit. And so the question then has to be asked in the context of Matthew 5 where it says, oh, I'm away from there, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about not just an internal righteousness, but it is an internal righteousness that then produces fruit that blows the mind past where the scribes and Pharisees, because they weren't willing to lift a finger to help others, right? And if the whole fulfillment of the law is love of God and love of neighbor, that's not what the Pharisees were putting on display. But if the Lord has given you a heart to obey and you obey from the heart, the spirit of the law, then that produces the kind of fruit that people look at that and say, that does exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Does that make sense? Okay, hopefully it will if it doesn't already. All right, so examples of submitting to the spirit of the law, and I've just pulled two here where Paul submits to the spirit of the Old Testament law and and gives instruction of the same. 1 Corinthians 9, and you might turn there. And the other one is in close context there. Okay, so Paul is talking about his rights as an apostle and the rights of those who serve the Lord And he's saying, although he's given up his rights in this regard, he's saying it is right that a gospel worker should be paid for his ministry, right? And he gives these analogies. Who uh, serves at his own expense? Who as a soldier serves at his own expense? Who as a farmer serves at his own expense and doesn't participate in the benefits of the fruit of his labor? Uh, So verse 9, and this is where he gets to the law, He says, and this is his justification for the point that he's making, that gospel workers should be paid by those whom they serve. Verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to, to thresh in hope of sharing the crops." So one of the reasons I go here is 
Paul is lifting this from Deuteronomy, and I think it's, it's either 24 or 25, and it's 25, okay. And it's at the, law, it's the end of a long section on civil statutes of how the Israelites were to relate to their neighbors. So this would be one where if you said, no, we just obey the moral law, well, then why is Paul appealing to a civil statute here? And the answer is there is a morality that's entailed in this civil statute, just like there is with all the law. The law is teaching us, and the summation is good, how to love God and to put that on display by loving neighbor, right? So all these statutes in Deuteronomy 25, even getting to, and the question could be, is this merciful to the beast who's being used to plow the crops? And I think the answer to that is yes. But it's also in the context of loving your neighbor from whom you've probably borrowed the beast, and you don't serve him well by not letting his animal eat. You could use it and exhaust it, and there you'd be exhausting the resources of your neighbor. Uh, but in any case, Paul says there's a, there's a principle here, there's a spirit of this law to which we must submit. And he puts it before the Corinthians and says, this is binding on you. This is what the law teaches, and so you must submit. Make sense? So here's an example of the fact that we need to obey the Old Testament law. We are not released from obedience to the, New Testament, the Old Testament law. Okay, so secondly, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. So this is where I said I was going to uh, hit again on Paul's willingness to not eat meat. Okay, so the verse says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And of course, there's no caps, all caps in there, which would mean this was a, a quotation from the Old Testament. But I want you to think, you have to think a little bit closer on this one. Where in the Old Testament does God dictate what people can and can't eat? What's that? Leviticus. So if we look at Leviticus and the food laws, would we think of those as moral, ceremonial, civil? Any guess? What's that? Yes, all the above. When if, we're, if we're making that bifurcation, we think of Leviticus as being ceremonial law. God is telling his people how to be holy. That's the constant refrain of Leviticus is how can you live, and there's all kinds of ceremony built into this, how can you live in such a way that you're worshiping God, you're clean, you're holy as he is because he dwells in your midst. That's the big picture of Leviticus. So, uh, we submit to Leviticus, and Paul is giving us an example here, by being holy in our preferences. God teaches in Leviticus even something as mundane as what you eat is to be set apart, is to be made holy. Your preferences in terms of what you're going to eat are to be made holy because of worship for me. And so Paul is applying that here in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through 10. And you recall, I think this was two weeks ago, I was pointing out at the end, well, not at the end, but I don't think it is, verse 31 of chapter 10, where it says, almost the end, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so even in the mundane things, and this is Paul's application of the Old Testament law, Levitical food laws that teach you to be holy in your preferences, he's fulfilling the spirit of the Old Testament food laws by saying God can dictate, including in terms of who he puts me around. If he puts me around people who, who are caused to stumble by my eating meat that are that's sacrificed to idols and I have no other way to eat meat and I love meat, 
even then, God has the right to tell me what I can or can't eat. And I'm going to joyfully, from the heart, to the spirit of that law, submit to it. Make sense? Okay. So, all believers must submit to all the law, Old Testament and New Testament. And there's the argument. Sermon on the Mount, internal obedience was always required. And Jesus is unfolding that. What does that look like in, in uh, the context in which he's preaching? And he does that in Matthew 5 through 7. And then Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Next point, because this could get kind of confusing if we didn't start to qualify it a little bit. No two believers submit to the law in the same way at all times. No two believers submit to the law in the same way at all times. Uh, And I have there under letter A, different people, different times, different circumstances call for submitting to the law in different ways. So again, like I said, the vast majority of the time, obedience to the spirit of the law is going to look like obedience to the letter of the law. But that's not always true. So I've got some examples here. Requirements of an elder. Requirements of an elder. The question there, and you've probably heard 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 preached before, do only elders submit to the requirements of an elder? No, right? We say that often, that the requirements of an elder are essentially the requirements of a faithful believer, with the exception that you be apt to teach, but even then... We're supposed to be able to give some kind of answer if people ask us uh, for the reason that we hope, for the hope that we have. So even with that, there's an element or a principle there. And here's a way to think about it. If, if my wife in her quiet time is reading 1 Timothy 3, and she says, wow, I am convicted that I need to be above reproach in these ways, in some ways that I haven't been. And so she repents, and this isn't, Kelly doesn't need to repent of that, uh, just for the record. But no, say she does, she repents of that. Has she submitted to the requirements for elder? The answer is yes. She has submitted according to her circumstances, according to who she is and the time and place that she is, the stewardships God has given her. She's been sanctified by that text and she has submitted to that text. Even though it wasn't primarily written to her or for her, it's, it's about qualifications for elder, right? Requirements of a king. Requirements of a king. Do only kings submit to those? Things like in Proverbs, uh, the king shouldn't get drunk, right? Say you read that and you're like, wow, I have stewardships. Uh, you know, I've been drinking and, and I'm convicted I shouldn't do that. I'm going to repent of it. Well, you're not a king. Are you called to obey that text? The answer is yes. And you're convicted by that. You're sanctified by it. You've submitted to that text even though you're not a king, Right? Next, and this is where the rub is in terms of the whole Old Testament, requirements of Israel. Does only Israel submit to these? And the answer is no. Others submit to them differently, to the spirit of them. Okay, let's see here. The examples could be multiplied in terms of submitting to texts that may not immediately seem to apply to you, uh, whether you're talking about women Children, men, those walking uprightly, those in rebellion, we all submit to every word, but we do so differently at different times according to who we are, what our circumstances are, etc. That makes sense? Okay. I'm seeing a lot of nods. 
feel free to follow up with questions later. All right, so uh, hopefully this next point will clarify further. Uh, there's language in the New Testament that we are freed in some sense from the law. So that is there in various places. You're no longer under law, you're under grace, those kinds of things. So, number three, what are we freed from? We are freed from the law's curse, not from its blessings. We are freed from the law's curse, not from its blessings. So, under freed from the law's curse, what does this include? It includes, first, freedom from its condemnation, which is the law rightly applied. That's the element of the law rightly applied from which we needed to be freed. And this goes all the way back to when the law was first instituted for Israel. They were going to receive blessings for obedience, but they would also receive curses for disobedience. And so Israel earned their curses through disobedience, and I'll mention this in the sermon this morning also because it, it uh, has to do with Ephesians 2, where it will be. Israel became a curse not just to themselves, but we see this especially in the prophets, that they become a curse to the nations. And the way we understand that happening is Israel, like Adam before them, was to be the vessel, the priesthood for mediating God's goodness to all the nations. Well, when Israel disobeyed and got scattered, we see that the nations to which they went, were those nations drawn to the Lord? Not by and large. They look at Israel and they say, if that's what it means to have a relationship with Yahweh, I want nothing to do with that. And so rather than being drawn to Yahweh, the nations are repelled. That puts them in a position of not being drawn to life, but being repelled away from life. And so that applies not just to Israel, that we uh, were cursed, it applies to all of us. We all receive that curse, and we receive it theologically in the Old Testament in part through Israel's hardening. We receive it, first of all, through Adam, and then again through Israel. Okay, so that's freedom to the law rightly applied. And I don't have time to go into this in depth, but I have there in the footnotes uh, the depth and riches of God's forgiveness week one from last year, March 28th. I went to, into this in depth where the law builds in, starting in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the way for curse to be removed from a people, and it involves putting the leader or leaders of the people on a tree. And Paul in Galatians 3 says that is exactly what happened with Jesus. It happens more than once in the Old Testament, in the conquest especially, the leaders of God's enemies, enemy people are put on a tree, their bodies are dealt with in a certain way, and pollution and curse are removed from the land. Well, in the ultimate example of this, the leader of God's enemy people, Jesus himself, God himself, goes on the tree and is pierced for our iniquities. His body is dealt with according to the law, and according to the law, the curse of the law is removed. So that's the law rightly applied. That's the element of it from which we're freed. We're freed from the curse of the law by the work of Jesus. Now the curse also entails that, that error of the Jews that I was talking about earlier. So we're freed from the wrong application of the law. The application of the law that says, I need to produce righteousness and put my, my righteousness on display by the law, we're freed from that also. So the New Testament talks about this both. That there is no need, there never was a need, but it's made really clear by the time of the apostles' teaching, that was a corrupt way of using the law, and the gospel frees you from it. That makes sense? We are not bound. We never were 
Israel was a, a, a bad example of the wrong use of the law, we are freed from that in Christ. We don't need to be enslaved. And of course, it's not just Israel. Every religion has that enslavement. Every religion tries to justify self somehow. Make sense? We're freed from that by the gospel. That's all a misapplication. You could call it a misapplication, actually, of conscience. Uh, in the case of Gentiles who know the right thing to do, why are Gentiles religious? Because they want to somehow atone for something they know is wrong. They want to. They can't do it. We're freed from that by the gospel. So, that's how we're freed. Two elements. Freed from the curse. Freed from the misuse of the law. Wrongly applying the law. But we're still under its blessings. And the blessing of the law, and you see this in Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. If you walk in the law, heart obedience, you've been given a heart to obey, and you work that heart out in obedience to the law, that is, you're walking blamelessly and upright. That's going to be the judgment. That's your position. God reckons your obedience to you as righteousness. Your position at Judgment Day is justified by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's, it's reflected in the willing heart of obedience that produces fruit. So this is why James can talk about it the way he does, and it sounds different from the way Paul talks about it. They're emphasizing two sides of the same coin. Make sense? Okay, so that was always the case, that heart obedience to the law was unto eternal life. The one who has heart obedience to the law already has eternal life. So what are the blessings of eternal life? And this is, this is built into the law. It tells you how to live with God. And like Leviticus telling you all these details of how to live with God, do we still submit to that? Not in the same way as Israel did. And the New Testament helps us. I'm going to get into some of that. New Testament helps us understand how a New Testament believer isn't Israel, just like my wife isn't an elder. I mean, not just like, but there's an analogy to be made there. We're not going to obey Leviticus in the exact same forms that Israel did. But Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 8, we're still under it. We're still letting God dictate to us even something as mundane as our food choices. We're under the law in that respect. So how do we live under God's smile, with his nearness, even physical healing in abundance? And of course, this can be misconstrued, and that's where you get into the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But what does it say in Isaiah 53? He bears our diseases, right? This was the promise to Israel. He'll take those illnesses and diseases away from you. And ultimately, that comes eschatologically. Does, does Jesus take our sicknesses away now in response to prayer? Absolutely. Does he always do it? No. But he loves to do that. He takes away sicknesses. He heals us. And that's ultimately, and you've, you've experienced this, when your countenance is down, what effect does that have on your body? It's not good, right? My bones wasted away through groaning all day long. With the gospel, he lifts our countenance, and it takes away the groaning of our bones all day long, right? Okay, now, the law's blessings also include obedience. From the heart, he's given to obey. And so, we continue to obey all the law, the spirit of it, as a blessing under this category of eternal life, where are we when we're obeying? Are we turning away from God or are we turning to him? And God is the source of eternal life. So if we're turning to him, we have eternal life now. That is a matter 
of obedience. Of course, he gives us the heart that wants to, the heart that draws near to him, which is when we look on him whom we have pierced, like I said last week, he pours out on us a spirit of grace and of supplication, we draw near to him. We mourn over our sin and we draw near to him. That's a matter of obedience. Um, and just, you know, in the, was the big idea? Obligated to obey by faith. This is a joyful obligation, but it is an obligation. Romans 8, 12, and 13, we are under obligation, brothers, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. It's our joyful obligation to come to God and to come to eternal life. Now this, letter E, makes sense of the Old Testament's view of the law. This makes sense. So if you've read Psalm 119, how does the psalmist talk about the law? Like it's a bad thing always hanging over his head? No. He loves the law. The law is his meditation day and night. He hungers and thirsts for it. He's seeing it not the way Israel by and large saw it as a way to put their own righteousness on display. He sees it as the opportunity for God's righteousness to be given to him as a gift and displayed through the fruits of obedience in his life, which are for his joy. So it makes sense of the Old Testament's view of the law. All right, number four. So the curse is removed. And in terms of rightly applied freedom in terms of the law, the law was being rightly applied when it brought curses down on unbelievers, right? The law was being rightly applied in that, and that's removed. So that changes from Old Testament to New Testament. Although it was counted that way, the land was, land was slain from the foundations of the earth, it hadn't actually happened until Jesus died on the cross and took away the sins of the world, right? So that actually happened, that changes from Old Testament to New Testament in the course of history. The question is, what else changes from Old Testament to New Testament? Well, letter A, for the law to be a law of life and for obedience to it to bless God's people and the whole world, the heart to obey was necessary. And this is where I have Romans 8. That's verse 2. I will start there. Romans 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. So where was the weakness? Was it in the law? It was in the flesh. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so that's the right application of the law's curse went on Jesus, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Christ. Is that what it says? That it might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, you skip ahead to verse 12 then, so then, brothers, we are under obligation. We, we can keep the law because, the God, because God has given the church the heart to obey, right? Now, this is the distinction between Israel, and actually, let me, I'm actually, uh, let's see, do I have it in my notes here? Okay, so I did, I paraphrased it. Okay, so Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 says, and this is God addressing Israel on the plains of Moab, having given the previous generation the law, and here he's reiterating the law leading into going into the promised land. To this day, he says, the Lord has not given you a heart to obey me and to keep all my commandments. But chapter 30, he promises he will. 
And then Ezekiel 36, he promises he will. Jeremiah 33, he promises he will. We get to the New Testament, and who's the first people to get the heart? Is it Israel? No, it's the church. It's the church. So the church is the first whole people with a heart. And so that's what Paul's addressing in Romans 8, is this whole people with a heart in whom the righteous requirement of the law can be met by obedience through the Spirit. And this, you know, Paul is all over this in pretty much all of his epistles. We are the temple of God. We are the people, the first people, fully indwelt, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see in Ezekiel, the Spirit leaving the temple never happens with the church. The church is empowered. The church is the first whole people that's able to bless the world. Adam failed. Israel failed. The church succeeds. That's, that's the huge significance there for Paul. Okay, so let's see here. Letter B. So what else changes from Old Testament to New Testament? You have a whole people now for the first time with a heart to obey. Secondly, Israel's scriptures are no longer just for Israel. Israel was given a commission to go and proclaim. No, they were given an, uh, a commission to stay and proclaim. And people who wanted to be part of God's people came to Israel. Right? And so you have this handful of people who do that. Jesus recounts that in Luke 4. So God's always been concerned for the Gentiles, and we see that going you know, at least all the way back to Genesis 12. But we have a new commission. This is a commission to the whole world. The Israel scriptures are no longer just for Israel. So the, old, the New Testament spends some time unpacking, okay, how does it look if everyone is now supposed to obey and this is everyone who comes into the church. We're supposed to be bringing people into the church, be part of this whole people with a whole heart to obey God. How does that look in, in this shift from previously people were supposed to join up to Israel and, and, and obey the law as Israel? Now it's not for Israel only. So how is this supposed to look? And you see in Acts, example after example after example of this unfolding, especially Acts chapter 15. So the question at issue there is, do we still need to obey these regulations in the same way that they were obeyed and followed in Israel? And what is the judgment of the apostles there, yes or no? No. So this would be another example, like, you know, Kelly doesn't obey the conditions for eldership the same way I do as an elder, uh, or the same way I do as a man, so there's another distinction even. You're closer to eldership if you're a man, even if you're not an elder. There's a difference in how we obey the spirit of those laws if we're not Israel. And that is reflected even because is it no without qualification? You can just ignore those in Acts 15. They give other stipulations. In order to serve those who still proclaim Moses and read Moses in all these places, what is it? Don't eat meat. Uh, with the blood still in it, there's one or two others. They're just very carefully nuanced. This is how we're going to love the people we're going to serve and be with in submission to this law. We're not saying, no, you don't obey it. We're saying, this is how you now go and obey it. Uh, and then those other examples I gave you, 1 Corinthians 8.13 and 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, those are examples of how the law applies now. And I said one of those is you know, from that civil category, one of them is from the ceremonial category, but they apply. We obey them. We work them out. The book of Hebrews, all about how have things changed, and I can't go into that this morning, but how have things changed from 
uh, from Old Testament Israel's observation of these things, their obedience to these things, to the church's obedience to these things. And there, there are changes in those things. Uh, okay, uh, so, and I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago. Do we still practice circumcision? And it's interesting, you see in Acts uh, 16, 1 through 5, that Paul does circumcise Timothy because of the group he's going to minister to. It's going to be the most loving thing to do for Timothy to be circumcised. And so that's what happens. But he's explicit in Galatians 2 because he's counteracting a uh, an error that says you have to keep the law the way Israel did in order to be saved. He's counteracting an error, and so Titus is not circumcised. He brings that up as a point, and so that resolves any tension. Do we practice circumcision or do we not? It depends on what's most loving. That's how we fulfill the law in this context. Okay, so uh, back to Acts 15, and you might open there briefly. Uh, and you can write down this citation. It's Acts 15, verse 10. Acts 15, verse 10. Okay, so this question is, do, do, does the New Testament church need to keep the law in all the same way Israel did? And the way the apostles wrestle with this is interesting. And this is, who's speaking here? Peter's speaking. Okay. Okay, he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So the question, and I think I have this in your notes, why is this part of the reasoning for not forcing Gentiles to keep certain commands in certain ways? And the answer is, are we free to obey those laws if we want to and to submit to them the way Israel did? Sure. And this is why Paul says, don't pass judgment on someone for keeping a feast or keeping a Sabbath. They're free to do that. But the question among the apostles is, what was the profit to that? And you see this worked out, especially in Galatians. Is there profit to the Judaizers wanting to make the Gentiles submit to the Old Testament law the way Israel was corruptly keeping it? Was there profit to that? No, in fact, it was the opposite of profit. It was to their condemnation because it was a misuse of the law. So I think the apostle Peter's logic here is, if we encourage all the the Gentiles to whom this gospel is going... If we say add to it, and that's the error Paul is correcting in in Galatians, if we say add to it all these these external observances, then you're going to confuse things. This has been to the corruption of our fathers. Israel has constantly misused and misapplied the law to their own condemnation, right? So has there been profit in that? No. So this is part of the reason for the answer the apostles give in Acts 15. They may be free, and, and then, like I said, they give it with a qualification. Do these certain things so that you won't offend the Jews, but there is no benefit to, to forcing everyone to uh, bring themselves under the ways that Israel has kept these laws historically. Okay, so again, this is sort of to recap the whole thing. A New Testament believer, just like an Old Testament believer, is obligated to obey by faith. And that's the qualifier. 
what the prerequisite is a heart for obedience, and then what we're submitting to is, like I said, oftentimes it's it's the letter of the law. So when the law says, do not commit murder, do we submit just to the the spirit of that and say, well, I'm not really murdering this person in my heart, but I'm going to slice them? (laughs) No, you submit to the letter of it. You submit to the letter of it, but Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, the point was always to submit to the spirit of it also. You don't be angry in your heart with your brother because that's in violation of the spirit of that commandment. So this is consistent all the way through Old and New Testament. Jesus is just correcting their misapplication of the Old Testament law that the Jews were known for at the time. Secondly, no two believers submit to the law in the same way at different times. Different people, different times, different circumstances submit to the law differently. Most often, like I said, you're still keeping the letter of the law. And that's, here's, here's another thing about the heart. Is the heart going to want to try to get as close to or as far from the letter as possible? As close to. Yeah. So if your heart is going, I don't have to keep that the way that Israel did, then you might wonder, okay, why don't you want to? I mean, not that, not that we have to. We, and that's, Acts 15 says it wasn't to their benefit to do it in some of those ways. But your heart wants to get as close to the letter and let that work out in the spirit as possible. Then we're freed from the law's curse, not from its blessings. Its blessings include obedience, which is counted as perfect. Uh, And so the curse is removed, but we do see other things changing in terms of application of the law from Old Testament to New Testament. All right, so we don't have a lot of time, but let me give what I think might be um, the most helpful for me way of thinking about questions that came up in week one uh, in terms of a framework for thinking through things like, and one that you brought up, Ryan, was, uh, is it okay to shop at Target? Um, another one that came up, maybe I can handle two. One was voting, um, and if I have time, maybe I'll ask for a third one. But let me give you the number one category for me, stewardships. And that might seem strange, but when I'm thinking through, okay, is it okay for me to shop at Target? I have a number of stewardships involved there in answering that question, and I just need to rightly prioritize them. That make sense? So I need to get my groceries somewhere. Target's a good place to get them. They have good groceries. Or I need to get my whatever, and Target's a good place to get it. Is that a stewardship of mine? Yeah, right? And maybe I can get it cheaper and more conveniently at Target than elsewhere. Is my time a stewardship? And is my money a stewardship? Yeah. So, so far, those are weighing in the direction of shopping at Target. Okay, now I know Target uses their money to promote uh, anti-God agenda, right? So that might lead me in the direction, say I have two choices. I can be a good steward of my time and money equally with the two, and I can choose, on the other hand, to my money, for my money to go to a pro-God or anti-God agenda. And you're going to be hard-pressed to find businesses that have a pro-God agenda. Well, then you're free to give your money not to Target, but to someone else, right? Yeah. So, now, is it a moral problem? And that's maybe the number one question. Is it a moral problem? Say Target's the only thing close by. Should I starve or not get those goods because giving my money to Target is in support of an anti-God agenda? And the answer is no. You know, now don't go against conscience. There's the qualifier. 
and I hit that two weeks ago. If, if it is pressed on your heart uh, that giving your money to Target in exchange for merchandise is idolatrous, is wrong, then don't do it. But before you starve or don't <laughs> get the things you need, seek to have your conscience reinformed. And part of the way that this can happen, uh, here's a question. Do you think that first century Rome had a pro-God or anti-God agenda? Anti-God agenda, right? So that's why Paul says in Romans 13, don't pay your taxes. <laughs> no. So is it wrong for your money to go towards something with an anti-God agenda? Don't go against your conscience. <laughs> and again, if you have two options, and even if you say, my priority on my time and my money is less, convenience, whatever, I'm going to go over here where I perceive they have less of an anti-God agenda, that's where I'm going to spend my money. You're free. You're free. But this is an issue of liberty. It's an issue of liberty. Okay, so stewardships. That's my number one framework. And, and I would address the issue of voting in that same way. Uh, God has given us a stewardship. We have more of a say than people in a lot of other countries in terms of the political process. And so is that something we should care about? We should care about every one of our stewardships. Is it our most important stewardship? No, not by a long shot. So how are you going to steward that gift of participating in government? That's a matter of liberty. It's a matter of liberty. Are you free to not vote? You are free to not vote, believe it or not. Now, if your conscience says you must vote, must you vote? Yes. And I would say probably a well-informed conscience is probably going to feel compelled to vote at least most of the time. Um, <laughs> for the sake of time and controversy, I'm not going to get into how I've voted lately. <laughs> but I'd be happy to share that with anyone on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But big picture, it's a matter of stewardship, it's a matter of liberty. All right, so hopefully I haven't left too much confusion here, because like I said, I'm <laughs> not doing week three, but feel free to come up to me separately, and I'm happy to answer questions, take comments, etc. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the wealth of riches that there is in your word. Father, thank you for this flyby of this issue. Uh, Lord, I pray that some of this would be to some profit. And Father, for all of us, what comes from your word, uh, would you apply it to our hearts by your spirit? Give us conviction to obey from a heart that is a gift from you. And Father, would you be kind, as you always have to your people, to count that obedience as imperfect as it is? Would you count it as perfect and blameless before you? Say of us that we are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.